0: Inside Books with Breeda Brown.
1: Welcome to Inside Books, a program about the magical world of writing. I'm Breeda Brown, and in each episode of Inside Books, we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers, and more. You'll find Inside Books on SoundCloud or iTunes, or wherever you download your podcasts. Our Twitter handle is at Inside Books where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. My guest today is Conor Brady, the former editor of the Irish Times newspaper. His journalism career has spanned six decades, which also included stints as editor of Guard the Review, editor of the Sunday Tribune and a variety of roles at RTE. He has written a number of non-fiction titles, including a range of books on the history of policing in Ireland. After he left the Irish Times, he wrote a memoir of his time in journalism. And in more recent years, he has turned his hand to fiction, writing four crime novels set in Victoria in Dublin, featuring Detective Sergeant Joe Swallow. The latest one is called In the Dark River. He was also the Commissioner of the Garda Siakana Ombudsman Commission for six years and has lectured extensively in journalism. He's currently an opinion columnist with the Sunday Times. Connor, you've a lot going on. I
0: have, yes, yeah. Uh, When you say six decades there, that sounds very frightening, but yes, it was a long time, been on the road a long time. I got into journalism quite... uh, Quite early, I suppose. Very lucky, I came straight out of UCD in 1969. It was an interesting time because um, the uh, up to up to the late sixties, uh, the newspapers didn't take many graduates in uh, directly. The Irish Times took a few from Trinity always, <laughs> but outside of that, there weren't very many. But what happened in in the late sixties was that um, the North had blown up, so the newspapers needed to expand the newsroom numbers, and they wanted. Young men and women who were a fleet of foot um and who were prepared to work round the clock, and also we were applying Ireland was applying to join the a um, common market as it was called at the time the e e c so they wanted people um with i suppose a bit of academic training and a bit of language so I had a history in politics and good french
1: and where did that initial
0: interest in journalism come from um I, there wasn't really a lot of it in the family. One or two um, of my mother's relatives had worked in the Freemans Journal and later on the Independent. And I was always intrigued by what they did. And I got to know them. There were elderly men in Dublin living at that stage when I was a, a young student. But I was um, I was a boarder in Ross Grey at, the, at Cistercian College in Ross Grey. And they had a great tradition in the college of... Um, of in-house journalism run by the school boys, so I became the editor of the, the Vexillum, which was the the in-house magazine uh, in the school. I really enjoyed that, I really, really enjoyed it, and it also gave you a lot of privileges. And then when I went to UCD, um, I joined, um, there were two newspapers in UCD at that time, Campus and Awake, and I joined Campus, and uh, there wasn't an awful lot of academic pressure, you know, on one in those days. So,
1: and was there much rivalry between the two newspapers? Oh, there was.
0: Yeah, there was. There was. Campus, which I joined, regarded itself as a kind of um, undergraduate Irish Times. Right. And Awake was a bit more populist. Um, uh, but a lot of people from both newspapers actually ended up in journalism uh, in 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 the late sixties, early seventies. People like. Um, uh, Henry Kelly, for example, uh, Rena Holland in the Irish Times, with myself, Olivia O'Leary, briefly, and um, uh, uh, quite quite a few people who who ultimately were to either go into into politics or indeed into into journalism.
1: And you enjoyed obviously the print side of it, and you worked in quite a number of areas in print journalism, didn't you?
0: Yeah, I went to the Irish Times um, straight after college, and they. It was, a, it was a wonderful training. They had, in the Irish Times in those days, when you came in, um, you were effectively apprenticed to a senior journalist, and you were, in my case, it was the news editor, uh, Jerry Mulvey, uh, the deputy news editor. And every night, you worked the late shift, you worked two in the afternoon until... Midnight if necessary. And
1: and you were shadowing them, essentially.
0: Yeah, well, you were working under their instruction. You were doing what they called covering the town. Uh, you had morning town, evening town. So there'd be a couple of reporters put onto town. So you did fires, floods, street accidents, crime.
1: All of those one-off incidents. All of
0: that kind of stuff, you know. And um, you learned the v- value of accuracy. Uh, you learned the value of detail. You also learned the geography of your city uh, because you had to do it all on foot there was no taxis paid for and nobody, no budget for that in nobody those days. Had cars <laughs> at that stage so it was very good training I have to say so then um uh, I was uh, I did a lot of work in Belfast as well because the north had blown up at that stage so
1: and I think that was quite eye opening
0: it was yeah it was it was a very unique opportunity for young journalists at the time because Irish journalism had been quite parochial up to then um uh, Ireland was a news backwater and suddenly um, it was a big international story so you found yourself sitting in Belfast in the Europa Hotel or the Grand Central Hotel uh, drinking in the evening with fellas from the New York Times or the Washington Post and
1: and this t- all on your doorstep yeah
0: TV crews from France or uh, you know from, from London and uh, big BBC names and um, you know people who became kind of household names later where reporters on the ground there are people like John Snow, Trevor Macdonald and these kind of guys. Uh, so you learned a lot from them mm. and you also in a sense developed um you developed an awareness of a wider world beyond beyond Ireland. So it was it was great training, yeah.
1: And where did you go after that?
0: After the Irish Times, uh I wanted to go back to college and um I, I did I did a year on the European Desk um and uh, travelled a lot around Europe and after that, I just said I wanted to go back to college, take a master's. And I was asked would I edit the Garda Review, which had become moribund at that stage. So I did that for the year. But that was really a kind of a means to an end. And after that, I uh, went to RTE. Uh went to work for uh, what is now This Week. And the news is one. Uh, my bosses there were Mike Burns and Sean Dignan. And they were two, two great guys to work for. Mm-hmm. You know, you learned a whole lot from them. Did a couple of years there. And... Um, uh, found radio quite stressful, quite really, chal- quite challenging. Yeah. Why live radio? You know, you're in those days you you do the news at one. You sit in the studio. You know, you probably know it yourself. The red light comes on, and you realise in those days it was one and a quarter million people out there. You know, and it was Listen. live. And if you if you missed something or you slipped on something, um, the whole country knew about it. And um, I, I do remember on one occasion. I'm sure it's never happened to you, but I had a total <laughs> mind blank. You go on and you say, it's one o'clock and this is Conor Brady with the news at one o'clock. I couldn't remember my own name, literally.
1: <laughs> and what's next?
0: <laughs> so from then on, I wrote it all down. So, but anyway, I did, I did my couple of years there. Enjoyed it hugely. Learned an awful lot there. And then... But
1: you ultimately went back to print. Then. Yeah,
0: Fergus Pyle was the editor of the Irish Times and he asked me, I had known Fergus um, when he was in Paris. He was a Paris correspondent. And um, he asked me when I come back to the Irish Times to be features editor, and that represented a significant advance, you know, step up in the hierarchy. Uh, so I went back there and I became features editor. And then Fergus became undone. He wasn't a very he was a very talented journalist, but he wasn't a great leader uh, mm-hmm. as an editor. And um, so he stepped down, and Douglas Gageby then came back to be editor of the paper for his second time. And Douglas and I hit it off really well even though he was old enough to be my father. Mm-hmm. I think he recognized in me that he was a young man with energy and ideas. So he gave me my head. And, uh, he, you know, at a very early stage, he took me aside and he said, I've got to recover this newspaper. and There's a few people here I want to use in the recovery process. And mm-hmm. you're one of them. So every week I would go to Douglas's house and we would work out a plan for the week of news to be covered and features to be covered. And then he put me in charge of the promotional end of the newspaper. We started uh, using radio to promote the, the paper and uh so I even if I say so myself, I probably did more than anybody else to push the circulation increases in the Irish Times at that stage. And we moved very rapidly from about um sixty thousand to about eighty thousand. Mm-hmm. And um
1: Which was quite a lot in that quite,
0: quite a lot in those days. And it was it was it was uh, he he then promoted me to be assistant editor, which was quite a high rank, paid well, got my own company car. Oh, there you go. You uh, tick the box. Yeah, and um, and then I was appointed as night editor for a while that was also a very good experience you learned about the nuts and bolts of producing the And
1: newspaper. I was go- going to say with all yeah, of that yeah. uh, you know experience you really were getting to understand every aspect of what made the newspaper tick yeah,
0: yeah, yeah because the newspapers in those days they were very much it was a bit like an apprenticeship you know it was a bit like maybe you're being maybe being maybe being a ship's officer you know you had to understand how to tie the knots you had to understand you know uh, how the anchor was pulled up you had to understand what to do when the anchor chain snapped Um, so uh, I had learned a lot and then I was invited to become editor of the Sunday Tribune and uh, Douglas didn't want to lose me I remember he was very he was annoyed about the fact that I left but he said to me look off you go you learn a lot there and if if you if it doesn't work out we will be glad to have you back, which was marvelous. A nice
1: little safety net there Absolutely, for you. Yeah. And you went over there again at probably what was one of the most exciting hmm. periods of our, our political history. We've yeah. had many, but yeah, it was the yeah. early nineteen eighties and we had three general elections in a very short we period of
0: time. We did. We had we had the most political turmoil and of course it was the um the political establishment was still working its way through the aftermath of the um the arms crisis and uh, Charlie Hawhey was being rehabilitated. There was a lot of skullduggery going on in politics and that's been pretty well documented. Uh, Geraldine Kennedy was our political correspondent. They tapped her phone. Um, They also tried other means of uh, subverting uh, what we were doing in the newspaper, but we had a good strong editorial team. And
1: given your position then at that point, I mean, how did you ensure that you were protecting your team?
0: I remember I did at one stage have to go to talk to somebody who was very close to uh, Hahi and say, look, you better get them to back off because, you know, up to now we've, we, we've played this thing by the rules. But if you really want to play, if you really want to, play, uh, if you really want to abandon, uh, abandon the rules of the game, we can do that too. So, um, but the staff were very good. The staff were very loyal. And uh, I, I remember there was one young receptionist, a telephonist, who came under enormous pressure uh, to act effectively as a an agent um, for certain people who were working with Mr. Hockey and she very courageously uh, held her ground and refused to have anything to do with it. And did she come to you and tell you that? Yeah, she did. Really, she did. Yeah, it was, it was. It was. It was. It was. It was a difficult time, but you learned. It also one drew strength from these things. One drew. You know, you learned a lot. You learned a lot about the nature of politics, and. Um, But unfortunately, the Sunday Tribune, it was a very successful newspaper. We had a great team of of journalists. We had Geraldine, Joe Carroll was political correspondent, a diplomatic correspondent. Mary Holland wrote for us. Uh, Patty Prenderville was editor of the Foreign Pages. Tom McGurk was the editor of the magazine. Um, All of
1: who have had long careers in journalism. Yeah,
0: Eamon Dunphy did our sport. Um, We really had a very talented team there. And the circulation was very good. The reader profile was excellent. Unfortunately, Hugh MacLachlan, who was the proprietor, uh, a majority proprietor, took some disastrous business decisions. He decided to open uh, a new daily newspaper, a tabloid called the Irish News, and within a few weeks, every penny was drained out of the place. So the company went into liquidation, as I like to put it. The newspaper was a great success, but the company was a failure. Un- unfortunately. <laughs> and
1: did you go back to the Irish Times Back to the Irish then?
0: Times after that then, yeah.
1: Okay. And when did the editorship then, when did that happen?
0: That was in 1986. Um, uh, when I went back to the paper at that stage, um, I was assigned to work on what were that at that time called new technologies. Oh, gosh, right. (laughs) Uh, It was the very (laughs) beginning. It was the very, very beginning of things like um, uh, CFAX and um, um, various uh, TV-based information systems. And uh, the very first uh, computers were beginning to come in, Mm -hmm. Commodores and and, uh, Amstrads and things like that. So I was assigned to work on all that, to research on all of that. And it actually gave us a great, um, gave us a great, uh, if you like, advance over the other Irish newspapers, because when in the um, in the late 80s, this actually began to become reality. We were well ahead. We knew what the technology could do. We knew what we could afford. So we moved into computer-based publishing systems. And then we were, the, the Irish Times was the, was the second newspaper on the whole planet, to put up an online edition. Really, the San Jose Mercury News was the first, and we were the second.
1: Hmm. And you increased circulation then quite a bit on the back of that.
0: Circulation began to increase. Well, the, c- the circulation increase of the Irish Times in the nineties was probably more due to um, the general lift in the in the in the in the uh, economy, but also the fact that large numbers of people who had left the country in the recession of the 80s, began to come back. And there was the thing, that they had actually stayed in touch with the Irish Times through the online edition. Mm-hmm. We, had, we, we had bought the domain name Ireland.com. So something in the order, I would say, of 100,000 people were reading the Irish Times every day online. And when they came back to Ireland... They um, they began to buy into uh, they began to buy the news the physical newspaper, so the circulation just kept on rising, rising. When when I left in uh, two thousand and two, we were at one hundred and twenty three thousand, which was pretty and again
1: hard. figures that newspaper editors today can only pretty much dream oh, of as as circulation yeah. goes, falls off a cliff. Yeah, essentially, you
0: can only a, uh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: So you you know you left then, obviously. Um, mm. What what were the circumstances around that?
0: Well, I've been there a long time. <coughs> I've been editor for nearly 17 years, and um, we hit and um, we hit a bad patch uh, in the immediate the first recession, if you like, after the 9/11 recession. Uh, the, there was a big bottoming out in, in e- stocks, and um, a lot of revenues fell away, so we moved straight away into, a, into a, a, a difficult trading situation. The paper was certainly very seriously overstaffed. There was a lot of fat in the place. Uh, a lot of overmanning, a lot of bad practices um which uh you know, and um, whose fault was that um, well, it certainly wasn't the editors uh, i had I had asked the company on many occasions to please set in um packages options for people to leave if they wanted to um never got that, and finally, push came to shove in two thousand and one, and we realized that we were simply going to have to shed costs. So we put in a um, a voluntary severance package, which uh, there was a lot of unhappiness about that. A lot of people were deeply unhappy. It was a very generous package. But it was voluntary. Yeah, it was voluntary. and It was oversubscribed in the end. Mm -hmm. Um, I've never met anybody since who who regretted leaving. I met a lot of people who regretted not leaving. Not going, yeah. Because it did mean that for those left behind... Um, there was now additional work to be done additional responsibilities so um, but I took the view at that stage that I would see that change through and that I would arrange then for a successor editor to be appointed who would come in and could come in with clean hands as it were, Mm -hmm. so Geraldine Kennedy um, uh, came in after me and uh, by that stage everything had been done the cost reductions had been put in the company didn't do a penny to anybody we had a state of the art printing press out of the city west uh, ireland.com was thriving mm-hmm. circulation was at an all time high um,
1: so do you feel you went out on a not necessarily a yeah. high but, but well i happy. felt i
0: felt i left a well ordered desk behind mm-hmm. you know and, uh, and 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 years after we were very successful as well you know
1: and then a couple of years after you left then mm. you wrote an autobiography up with the times I and did. that was sort of <laughs> you know talking about your your yeah. journalistic career so why did you feel the need to write it
0: um I suppose um there was a fair bit of stuff there that uh had happened that, that, that wasn't very clearly understood. Um there was a lot of uh I think certain things needed to be put in perspective as well. I was particularly anxious that the paper's role uh in the Northern Ireland peace process should be chronicled. Um, uh, because, you know, by now we had peace on the island and um, a lot of people got a lot of credit for that deservedly mm-hmm. I, and I, I always felt that the role of the news media not just the Irish Times but the role of the, of, of, of the news media and certainly the role we played in the Irish Times in sustaining the peace process Um Uh, You know, there were many dark days and dark nights when I'd had people on that phone to me in the editor's office, you know, senior figures in the SDLP and senior figures in Sinn Féin and senior figures in the Unionist Party in deep despair, you know, and you'd, you'd put out a leader the following day or the following Saturday and you knew that you were actually giving them the bit of encouragement that they needed, so... That was a big motivational factor in it. But also it was fun. I just wanted to recall what I had been at, you know. <laughs> and
1: and how did you go about getting a publisher then for that?
0: Uh, well, I had been friends with Gill and Macmillan all along. They, back in the 70s, I did A History of the Garda. And um, my editor there, Mary Dewey, was a, was and remained a good friend of mine. And the uh, eponymous uh, chairman of the company, uh, Michael Gale, is also a good friend. So there were the obvious people to go to.
1: And in terms of structuring it then and writing it, did mm. you find it, you know, and obviously you'd retired at this point, you were you were sitting down and it, it's a memoir, yeah. so it's not fiction.
0: You can't make <laughs> it up.
1: Um, how did you find that whole process?
0: I enjoyed it. Um, one of the things I did when I was editor was I, I, I kept meticulous diaries. So I knew exactly what I'd been doing on what particular day and who I saw and what transpired and... Um, So it was important, uh, you know, there were a number of things to be put on the record. Uh, Like, for example, there was a perception that somehow the Irish Times, you know, had been kind of hand in love with Mary Robinson when she went to be president of Ireland and that we had somehow done the dirt on Brian Lenahan and uh, that we had been used by the Labour Party and used by forces of the left to get their president. But in fact, if you went back through it and you were, you know, as I did, you could chronicle the, the editorial. In fact, on the morning that before the vote, we urged people to vote for Austin Curry, not for Mary Robinson. Mm-hmm. You know, So uh, there were myths like that that you needed to kind of shoot down. And, and, and so having kept meticulous diaries and, and, and details and notes, I, I just wanted to put the record right on a few things.
1: And was it difficult then to get it cleared legally?
0: Not really, no. No, not really. No, uh, because having been in court so many times over the decades as editor, I had kind of inbuilt warning systems, so I knew how to kind of write around stories. There was one or two things that that were that caused the lawyers some difficulty, but no, for the most part, it went fine.
1: And were you happy with the end result then, yeah? Yeah, it was, yeah,
0: yeah it's, it's still a good read, yeah. <laughs> good. Encouraging everyone to, to pick it up.
1: And then you moved yeah. into uh, fiction, and mm. particularly crime fiction. Mm. So was that, did you make that decision on purpose, the crime fiction aspect?
0: <laughs> well, what actually happened was that a couple, a couple of things came together. I was uh, I was asked by the government to uh, become commissioner at the New Gartha ombudsman uh, when they set that up in two thousand and five under the two thousand and five uh, Gartha Act, and I did that and um, I enjoyed it hugely and it was a great great satisfaction. We created this organisation. We recruited. Police officers from all over the world brought them in um and set up the operation. Now it's been hasn't all been perfect, but it's been it, it did more or less what it was set up to do for a while. Uh but it was hard going and uh I found the work on the legal files extremely taxing because you're sitting there as one of my colleagues judge Ke- kevin hall oh, was my fellow commissioner kevin is dead now he was a high court judge as kevin said when you sit down really what you're doing is you're trying to arbitrate between two sets of perjuries so which is the most mm-hmm. uh, likely set of perjuries can you believe and i was my mind was kind of bombed at that stage and i said to myself one night i said i wonder can i actually do anything creative at this stage something different to take your mind off it. yeah exactly yeah so i started putting this stuff together This fictitious character, Joe Swallow, in in Dublin Castle.
1: And had you done anything creatively in the past? No, not a line.
0: Not not a line. Really? Not not a line, never. And um, uh, I wrote it quietly to myself, put a first draft up. Uh, Now, my late wife was a teacher of languages and literature, and she was much more literary than I was, but I didn't tell her about it. Oh, really? Yeah, I was afraid. How did you get away with that? I I was afraid that she'd (laughs) pick it up and ridicule it. And um, uh, but I did the first draft and uh, I um, I showed it to her then and she approved of it. And then I, I talked to Caroline Walsh, who was the books editor in the Irish Times, and a dear friend of mine. And Caroline said, look, go to Dermot Bolger in New Island. It's, it's their thing. And New Island were they just took it up like that. And was it much reworking on? It? No, not no, no, very little, very little. That's very great. Little.
1: Not a lot yeah. of authors can say that. Yeah, no,
0: there was very little. I mean, I I drew a lot on, you know, Joe Swallow is fictitious, but he's not unreal, um, and the world that he inhabits is not unreal. Uh, it's set in 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 Dublin, in in the police establishment, in 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 the eighteen eighties. Uh, there's a he's a deeply conflicted man. He's a Roman Catholic from a, a sort of uh, his people on a on a small pub in County Kildare, and
1: uh, and why did you set it in the 1880s? What was the logic? For
0: I think it? the 1880s are, I th- I think the 1880s 1890s that period is the most fascinating of all in Irish history. I mean, we've focused so much over the last few years on 1916 onward. But I think 1916 and what happened in the war and what happened in the establishment of Irish independence was actually the culmination of the things that happened Before in the 1880s that. and the 1890s. And the most significant thing, of course, that happened in the 1880s and 1890s was that the land was transferred. Mm-hmm. From the landlords were were bought out, and the people who were our great great grandfathers, great great grandmothers, actually became owners of their land. <coughs> That had a huge transformational effect on Irish society.
1: And you, I mean, you very much have mirrored and, and spoken about all the key aspects that were going yeah. on at that time. So it's nearly like factual fiction and yeah. such. But yeah. you have to make sure that all of your statistics and your facts yeah, and everything yeah, are right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. was that a
0: challenge or did you enjoy it? Yeah, both. Both. Yeah. I mean, you have to be accurate. If you don't get stuff right, you know, particularly... You know, fellas, well, you'd get picked up on that, you know, and and, and, and even small details. In the first Swallow book, for example, Swallow and uh, his assistant Mossop are called up to where their body has been found at the Phoenix Park at seven in the morning. And uh, they go in the Chapel Lizard Gate in their uh, horse-drawn cart. And uh, a man phoned me one day, I don't know where he got my number from, and he said, I can tell you, he said... I was a ranger in the Phoenix Park, he said, for 40 years and that gate was never opened before (laughs) eight in the morning. (laughs) People pick up on on everything.
1: And even, you know, as you said as well, it's like, it's dialogue though. We probably spoke differently then. It was social attitudes and everything was quite different.
0: Mm, Yeah. And yeah, I remember one thing, one clanger I did make in the first one. It was picked up by one of the editors, in, uh, by, by Justin in, in New Island, where talk about talked about uh, waiting to the weekend and something happened. The concept of the weekend was unknown mm-hmm. in Victorian times. It only came, it, the, the term only developed in the 1920s. Uh, they didn't know what you were talking about, You said the weekend. So the language had to be different. All the mores were different. Uh, all of the values were... It was, a, it, it was a time when people's values were in... Uh, there was a lot of conflict. And Swallow is a very conflicted man. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a Catholic nationalist. His grandfather was a pikeman out in 1798. Um, his his mother has a picture of Robert Emmett hanging over the bar down in, 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 in Kildare. But he's working for the British establishment as a detective in Dublin Castle. And uh, and he and his boss, uh, John Mallon, who, of course, is a real-life character, an amazing man, um, they realise that... Um, They have to keep Parnell in power because if Parnell falls from power, there's going to be murder across the land, literally. So that is a constant theme with all the books. That's the attempt to keep Parnell out of the clutches of his enemies.
1: Um. And i it's interesting because, again, they're all great reads, but Good. I found them quite interesting. They were nearly like history books, yeah, well, in, a, in a way, with a, with a story attached. I'm glad you
0: found that because that's the way, that, that's what I conceived of them as, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And were you nervous then when it initially appeared on shelves? Because this is more about, I know you've written the the autobiography mm. previously, but this is more a creative project.
0: Yeah. and, you know, people keep on saying, you know, how much of you is in that, you know, and... Uh, um, um how much of how much of your own personality and your own character is in there and uh and they're always trying to sort of see you in the characters that you write some of it is probably true um a lot of it is imagined but i also i mean i did draw a lot on on, on uh i suppose as one does on characters in one's own family uh you know like my my father's aunt owned a public house on the Cora so i took that as 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 the location mm-hmm. for uh, for a swallows family background and a lot of it you know i grew up in the midlands so a lot of a lot of things happen in the midlands and um it's not a part of ireland that gets a lot of literary exposure sometimes so i enjoyed writing about the bogs and the flatness and all that kind of you know
1: and it's you're on book four now. Book so four is out. Yeah. You didn't let any of the research go to go to waste. <laughs> so you, you got four books out of it. And that process of going from book one to two yeah. to three to four. Some people, other authors on inside books, have said you know they found one and two fine. They found three a real yeah. struggle. How did yeah. you find it?
0: I, I you're right. Uh, four I found difficult. And to be quite honest, were I not for pressure from the United States. Uh New Island did a publishing deal with uh, St. Martin's Press in New York, which has been great because it means the books go into the States and into Canada. So you get a good sale there and a good exposure there. The Americans wanted a fourth one. Uh, and uh, so I did this fourth one. And I, I keep on telling people, I think I probably feel like women having babies. <laughs> you know, that Will they, I, won't I? You know, they say, uh, never again. Uh, But then, after a little while, they say, well, actually, you know, you never know. Maybe I would. And is there another one? There might be. Mm -hmm. Um, There might be. It's difficult. I've used up a lot of the plot because in the end of the fourth book, we're up at the Parnell divorce. Mm -hmm. um, And um, Parnell's effectively toppled from office. So I think the fourth one would open on his funeral, which, of course, is one of the great spectacles Uh, of that era in in Ireland. Somebody said, if I could take Swallow and bring him to a more metropolitan location, that we could have a whole new lease of life so he could go to London or he could go to Canada or he could go to Africa or someplace. And the interesting thing about it is that historically, a lot of those people in the Dublin metropolitan police and in the Royal Irish Constabulary, they did go to the colonies uh, and they did take up Uh, roles uh, they they got you know if you were you could get you could move if you were say an inspector say in the Royal Irish Constabulary you could go to India or you could go to South Africa and be a commissioner so you went up in the world you got a very lot of extra money and um, uh, you could have a whole new second career so we'll see what happens
1: You never know watch this space and what about (laughs) setting a plot in more contemporary times?
0: Hmm Mm, he'd be very old, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I think you might have to find a new a new uh, protagonist. Yeah, son or his, of his, Swallow. Exactly, or his, his grandson.
1: And how long does it take you to write each of the Swallow books then? Uh, about 18 months, I'd say,
0: mm-hmm. on average. You know.
1: And do you have a routine do you, in your head? Do you have to write a certain amount every day?
0: No, no, no. One of the things that one learns as a journalist, and it's a skill that sometimes people who know me um, um, kind of marvel at it, is that when you're when you're working as a writing journalist out on the ground, as a reporter on the ground, you write where you have to. Like I mean, when I was in Belfast, I wrote in I wrote stories in phone boxes. Um, you know, I, I I wrote stories in lying under beds in Ballymurphy. Um, I wrote stuff at, you know on bar stools, uh, and and you went to the phone and you dictated it down the line to to the head office. So. I mean, with the, um, with the, with the mobile, uh, with the laptop, you know, you're... You can go anywhere. You've got half an hour to wait for a flight, you know, you've you got 500 words.
1: Tap, tapping away. And it's funny, other, <coughs> you know, again, other authors have said mm. to us that working in a, a, a deadline-driven occupation mm. like journalism has really helped them yeah. when, when they have uh, yeah. sat down to write, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, so what's next then?
0: Um, somebody has asked me about doing a, a screen treatment on this. Oh, interesting. I just had those conversations yesterday. I've had those conversations with people before, but the people that I'm talking to now are probably more serious and um, I think more realistic than anybody I've talked to up to now. The stories are very visual. They're very, very visual. And some people have said that the actual the character of the city is really what it defines is. the book's right? Uh,
1: and it feels like the, the atmosphere is very evocative, yeah, yeah. Is, is what I found. And certainly, you know, because you described the streetscapes, mm. uh, certainly around central Dublin, mm. and I, I know Dublin quite well, mm. so I knew exactly where you were. Yeah, at exactly. Time, even yeah, though some yeah. of well, the street people, names
0: have changed. People say that that, that comes across very strongly. So um, there may be something in that, um, and uh, I, 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 I'm going to work on that for a bit. But at the moment... Um, quite enough to do. I have two young grandchildren to look after and um, I've recently moved part-time to County Galway and uh, putting a house into order down there and I'm involved in a couple of other things. I'm involved uh, here with the ARC Cancer Care Support uh, Houses. We have two two houses in Dublin and a third one being built by my late wife uh, died of cancer and uh, so I have an interest in that. Right. And uh, a few other bits and pieces that keep me going. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not idle. You're not. You're not idle. <laughs>
1: and uh, before we let you go, I mean, intrigued as to what your view is on journalism and where it's at hmm. at the moment. I mean, again, so much has changed in the in the time, just even since you've yeah. left the Irish Times, yeah. we've had the onslaught of online yeah. news, yeah. social yeah. media platforms, yeah. newspaper circulation is, is declining. So where is it going?
0: I think it's a very much harder time to be in journalism now than it was. And uh, I think the pressure is extraordinary. The pressure of time is extraordinary. Um, You know, uh, when I was editor of the Irish Times, the first conference of the day was at 11 o'clock in the morning. And now they're on the go at six. They are. uh, And they're working around the clock. Um, I think it's much more difficult, much more demanding. Um, It's difficult for journalists to get time to think. Time to reflect. An analysis. An analysis. And I suspect that that's one of the reasons why the British media have made such a poor hand out of Brexit, that the kind of the thoughtful, challenging analysis, that you know, the news, the British newspapers, they should have called out the lies and the misrepresentations and the prejudice, but they didn't. They reinforced them. And I suspect that that is because... A lot of them uh, simply, a lot of the journalists, a lot of the commentators, are sort of running so hard that they um, they, they 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 never had the chance to engage with issues in the way. If you look contrast, for example, the way the the British press, um, you know, um, well, some of them, most of them actually were very were quite thoughtful and were quite insightful into the processes that drove. Um, that drove the irish movement that the irish peace up to the up to, up to the good friday agreement and all that and they understood what was going on and they understood how diplomacy had to work and how politics had to work and they were very supportive of what the politicians were doing and that did make a difference and i remember the late mo molam you know saying that, that 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 at times when it all seemed so black they were so glad to have the support of um of serious considered editors and commentators and that's been lacking so much in the brexit debate so I, I i'm afraid i find it difficult to be very optimistic it's 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 a it's a tough time
1: and in terms of training journalists i think as well is there more mm. of an opportunity there i suppose to ensure that they are trained up to understand the importance mm. of that analysis as opposed to chasing the top-line story absolutely, on an hour-by-hour yeah. hour basis
0: yeah absolutely and yet it's very hard you know, there aren't that many of them can make a living. There isn't that much resources there to pay them to actually sit and think, you know. I mean, there aren't that many. Fentanyl tools because the, the industry can't afford that many fentanyl tools.
1: We'll find it all out now <laughs> as, as it all unveils and unfolds over the, the next number of years. Conor Brady, thank you for joining us here on Inside Books, and you'll find Conor's latest book, In the Dark River, in your local bookshop now. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at Inside Books E. R E. I'm Brida Brown. Until next time, keep reading.
0: Inside Books is a unique media production.